0: All right, good morning again, and let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 this morning. And let's begin in verse 3, and let's read together. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing that is in heavenly places in Christ, just as He has chosen us in Him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood and for forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mysteries of his will, According to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on the earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsels of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of to the truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Wow, that's a mouthful, isn't it? I once heard a story by Billy Graham that I really believe illustrates sufficiently the point I want to make this morning. It was a story of a young man who graduated college, and all he wanted from his parents was a new car. He was asked, he responded, and said, all I want is a new car for my graduation." Well, the graduation came, the party then proceeded. His dad gave him a beautifully wrapped gift, and within the box, he opened it, and you could see the immediate disappointment upon his face. It was a Bible. His dad gave him a Bible for graduation. The young man became so furious with his parents that he shortly after that moved out and had very little contact with him from that point. And unfortunately, the dad suffered a heart attack shortly after that and died. When the young man came home to help his mom clean out some of his father's things, he found a box in the attic. And within that box was the Bible that he was given at graduation. And this time, the young man, because of the moment and realizing that his dad was gone, opened the Bible, and in it he discovered an envelope. And in that envelope was a letter written to him by his father, sharing with him that he felt that the Bible was the best gift that he could ever give to his son, the Word of God. But also enclosed in that letter was a check for a new car. The young man missed that moment. I can only imagine how that young man felt after realizing that he reacted in a way that was inaccurate because he was more concerned about what he apparently didn't get than what he was being given. Over the last year, I've heard from many what appears to be a growing focus on what we don't have or the things that we are lacking some even becoming embittered because of those things, frustrated, chip on the shoulder. And in the wake of that, they appear to be continuously forgetting all that we truly have been blessed with in Christ. I think it's time that we as Christians once again took a step back. And I'm I'm positive that there's something that we all want, that we believe would make our lives better, happier, that would fulfill us to a greater degree to allow us to experience a deeper sense of contentment. But let us be reminded that God always promises that he'll provide all that we need, but he never uh, promises that he'll provide all that we want. And if we feel that we're lacking something, and that lack of something, whatever it may be, is deterring us from being content. Maybe the problem is us and not God. Maybe it's time that we took a step back and reminded ourselves of all that we have been blessed with. And I think it is safe to say, and you may disagree with me initially in hearing this, that I'm looking at some of the most blessed people that I know. And I'm not only speaking about the fact that we have material blessings, that we have homes to go home to, that we have vehicles that we use to come here. We have money extra to spend on things not only that we need, but things that we want. But more importantly, I'm talking about your spiritual blessings that you have been given in Christ Jesus. You know, for the last three weeks, we've been talking about the incredible hope and blessing that we have in knowing that Jesus Christ is going to return for us. And that this world is truly, for us who are believers, the worst it's ever going to be. It's only going to get better. But let us understand that that blessing didn't begin just with the knowledge of the return of Jesus Christ. That blessing began before the foundations of the world. And if you look with me in our text this morning, which is Theologically Rich, I mean, we are jumping into the deep end of the theological pool without floaties this morning. In fact, commentators have often stated that if, if they could only have one book of the Bible to sustain them while isolated, in some form, it would be the book of Ephesians. And every so often, I love that, that my voice cracks at 53. Uh, every so often, I go back to this book, to these verses, to simply remind myself once again that we are blessed totally. And we are blessed totally in Christ Jesus. And maybe this morning you need to be encouraged. And maybe you need to be challenged a little bit, you know, and, and asked to say, hey, maybe get off, get your eyes off those things you don't have, and let's put them back on what you do have and how much you have been blessed, that we can truly adopt a attitude of thankfulness and praise before God. One time someone came to me, and I noticed that they were sitting out in the lobby of the church, and during worship, they didn't come in, and And I said, "Hey, you know, why don't you come on out to worship? You know, why don't you come in worship? Let's worship the Lord." And they said to me, "Well, I I really don't have anything to praise Jesus for today." And I said, "That's pretty short-sighted." And I went through a few things, and I reminded them of what they did have rather than what they didn't. It's easy to become discouraged. It's easy to become bitter. It's easy to become critical. When we focus on those things that we don't have and want so desperately, sometimes the hardest thing that God ever calls us to do is wait on Him, isn't it? But if He's put that in your heart, He will provide that need for you when you need it. But as we begin here this morning, let me again remind you that we are totally blessed in Jesus Christ. Let's begin in verse 3, if you will. And there are two words within verse 3 that I want you to notice, and if you are one who likes to defile your Bible with highlights or underlines, feel free to do so. I'm not sure you're saved, but feel free to do so. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, first word, has, past tense, you've been blessed. Not that you're going to be blessed, even though we are going to be blessed with his return and so forth, but the blessings that he is currently referring to, you have been blessed with. You have them now as a Christian. It's not something you're waiting for. It's not in the mail. You're not waiting for Amazon Prime delivery. You have them now. Secondly, who has blessed us with a few spiritual blessings? Is that what your Bible says? A few? If it does, return it. Because it means every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing that is in heavenly places, you have been blessed with. That was a great place for an amen. You might have, decaf was not the best selection this morning. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. That is in heavenly places. Why? Because we are in Christ. That's a phrase that I want you to notice as we go through the text this morning. All of this is possible because of Jesus. Jesus has done this work. In fact, we're going to find through verses 4 through 14 that the entire Trinity was in operation in your salvation. The entire Trinity was in operation during your salvation. And there are four things that we are going to notice from our text that Paul wants his readers, the Ephesians, to understand. And he categorizes these blessings into four categories. Number one, he categorizes the first blessings is that we have been chosen by God. Number one, that we have been chosen by God. Number two, that we have been redeemed by God. We have been redeemed by God. Number three... That we have an inheritance in God. And number four, we've been sealed by God for that promise. So as we work through this incredibly theological rich portion of Scripture, and there are some terms here you may not be uh, familiar with or uh, really understand fully. That's okay, some of the deepest understand, or doctrines of the Bible are found within these 11 verses. Let us begin in verse 4. Knowing that we have been chosen in Him, verse 4, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as the sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to To the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. The doctrine of election is meant to be a very encouraging doctrine to the Christian church. Unfortunately, the way it's been approached recently and in time past, it's become more divisive than it has been edifying. God has chosen each and every one of us before the foundations of the world. Before the foundations of the world. Meaning that before God ever created this world, He chose you and I for His purposes, for His plans, and more importantly, for His glory. The reason He chose chose you was first and foremost to set you apart that you be holy and that you be blameless in christ taking you out of this world bringing you out of darkness and bringing you into light out of death into life he chose you from the beginning of the foundations of the world secondly after separating you to be holy and blameless, meaning separated for His purposes and His plans. He then adopted you to allow you to take His name, to become heirs and joint heirs with Christ. He allowed you to become sons and daughters of the King through the choice that He made of you. And this choice was according to His will, Paul says, very clearly. You know, we would love to believe that God chose us because, well, we're just all that and a bag of chips. How could God resist me? God certainly knew what I would bring to the table. God knew that I was going to outperform and be better than all the other ones that he has chosen. Well, I hate to burst your bubble if you feel that way because God explicitly says, Paul writes to us and says that God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. God chose you simply because He chose to choose you. And that He chose to love you. And there were many years that I could not see or understand why God would ever love me. And yet He chose me from the foundations of the world according to to his will for the purposes of setting us apart adopting us into his family and lastly to glorify him for all eternity the Bible teaches us something very interesting the Bible says that God shows us that we may glorify him in this world it's the same principle that uh, and the reason that God chose the nation of Israel He chose them to be a light so he could glorify himself in and through his people. And so he chose us for that purpose as individuals. But not only did he choose us to glorify him, but he also chose us that we may glorify Christ for the work in which Christ has done on our behalf. Worshiping the Son for all of eternity for what Jesus has done on our behalf. For his glory, we as Christians are called to live to the glory of God. People should see our lives and glorify God for the work that he has done in it and is doing through it. The world should see us and know that God has chosen something foolish of this world to utterly confound the wise. And therefore, he gets all the glory, because we know in and of ourselves that we have done nothing to warrant this incredible blessing, and that God should rightfully receive all the glory for the work that he has done. P- Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, he talks about this election, and he says, we were elected according to the foreknowledge of God. In the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Christ, grace uh, to you, and peace be multiplied. Based on the foreknowledge of God, God elected you. God knew all things at all times. When we consider knowledge, we often consider it in the position of a linear line. We're at this moment... We know the past, and we have no idea of the future and what's going to happen. That portion of our life is blinded to us because of our limited perspective here in this moment. We are on a, what is called, in physics, a linear plane, okay? God is not on a linear plane. He's eternal. In fact, the Bible clearly tells us that God sees all things at one time. He knows the past, the present, and the future, and sees all happening at one time. It's one of the great mysteries of the incredible character of God. So there wasn't a point in time ever that God did not know you. Isn't that something to consider? Knowing everything that you would do, everything that you would say, every action that you would commit, and yet He still chose you. Those things that we believe that we ourselves only know of ourselves, God sees openly, and yet He still chose you. And Paul saw this as an incredible blessing, and that blessing would continue. Philippians 1.6 states, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. I mean, he didn't get into this project of restoring you and bringing you back and reconciling you back to God and say, oh gosh, Eric was more of a restoration uh, project than I thought. Listen, I'm not sinking any more money into this thing. I'm done. I'm out. I think we've all been there, right? We've all started projects thinking we were fully capable of completing them. And then realizing once we got into the middle of the project that we didn't have the one tool necessary or we didn't have enough money to complete it and we ended up hiring somebody else and paying double what we would originally because we messed it up to begin with. When God committed to you, He committed to you from the beginning to the end. The work that He has started in you is the work that He is going to finish in you and you can count on that. Because He has chosen us from the foundations of the world. Second, verse 7. He has redeemed us. He has redeemed us. In Him we have redemption. Through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Which He made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence. Verse 9. Having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, he purposed in himself that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on the earth in him. The process of redemption. You know, often when we look at a biblical word, we have to first consider how that word is used within our own personal culture, right? That's our most familiar understanding of that word. And I think in our home, and maybe it's like yours also, that when we talk about redeeming something, it often has to do with a coupon that we've been given, or a gift card that we have been given, correct? You know? And... I personally always get behind the person in Walgreens who has 43 coupons and they have to go through each and every one of them and of course some of them are outdated and cannot be applied to the person's purchase that is in front of me and then the debating begins between the customer and the, the cashier and they begin negotiating and haggling like we were in some marketplace, you know. What do you mean? I have 43 coupons for this coffee. You should owe me at the, at the end of the transaction, you know. But that particular idea of redemption doesn't truly apply to our understanding of the biblical concept of redemption. Uh, during the Roman Empire, there were over 60 million slaves in or can, you know, within the Roman Empire itself. And, and slavery in that culture was much different than the slavery that we are accustomed to when a single race was oppressed and, you know, uh, placed into bondage. In the Bible, slavery could be a result of being conquered by the Roman Empire and then you lost your freedoms and you were brought into a position of slavery as a citizen or within the citizenry of Rome. Or it could be due to a debt that you had that you could not pay, then you would go into the servitude of the particular person that you were indebted to. And though slavery was a commonplace in the Bible, there are differing aspects about it. The argument that the Bible condones slavery is absolutely false. Just because the Bible acknowledges a reality, it doesn't mean that the Bible condones that reality. That being said... A person could be taken out of a position of slavery in that culture by being redeemed. A price was paid for that person, either settling of a debt or because they were conquered militarily, They, they could be bought and brought into full citizenship of Rome. And that's the more common understanding of the word redeemed in the Bible. Now, what has Christ redeemed us from? That's the question. But first, let us understand, first and foremost, that this redemption allowed for God to forgive us. God could not simply arbitrarily forgive us of our sins. That would contradict His word. Because the wages of sin is death. In the Old Testament, of course, he provided the means by which an animal is sacrificed on behalf of an individual, and that blood of that animal would temporarily cover the sins, kofar, the Hebrew word kofar, temporarily cover the sins of that person. But unfortunately, if the person sinned again, they would have to sacrifice another animal, and you can imagine how that routine would become. That's why the New Testament tells us that once and for all Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, did it once and for all, for all sin. The significance of his sacrifice on the behalf of man. That's why the Bible clearly tells us that our sins can be removed. They can be carried away. The word forgiveness means carried away, removed, taken, remembered no more as the psalmist said. And again, this concept of being carried away is truly derived and drawn from the process of Leviticus 16, where the great high priest would put his um, hands on on the sacrifice and allow the scapegoat to go into the wilderness and to be remembered no more. It was a symbol of their sins being carried away. Jesus Christ has done that on our behalf, and the only way He could do that for us is by giving His life in our place. Dying for us. But the removal of sins is found in the promise of the Psalms. Psalm 103.12, David writes, As far as the east is from the west, so far as He has removed our transgressions from us. Peter also reminded us that this was possible through the blood of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Our sin was so serious before God that it required the blood of His only begotten Son, to wash us clean from that sin. And of course, this positions us now, now that we have been redeemed, now that we have been forgiven, it positions us to have the hope of the return of Jesus Christ. As Titus stated in Titus 2, 13 and 14, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that we might that he might, excuse me, redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. As one wrote, the late Warren Worsby, Christ has brought us back from the tyranny of sin, literally ransomed us. He's bought us back. At a terrible price, his own life. He has set us free from those enemies that once owned us, fear, prejudice, lust, anger, legalism, greed, and made us his own. Imagine you are a slave and you belong to a horrible master who has no regard for your health, your feeling, or your life in general. That's what it's like to be under the tyranny of sin that only Christ, through his blood, can redeem us from. Christ paid a price on our behalf that we could not pay ourselves, freeing us. What a motivation to no longer live in the ways of the old life, but to live full on in the new life in which God has given us. But after redeeming us, he then clearly indicates in verse 10, I'm sorry, in verse 11, that we have obtained also an inheritance. Read with me. In him we have also obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted him in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. The children of Israel were promised a land of their own when they came into the promised land, being, of course, led out of the nation of Egypt by Moses. And when they came to the land finally and were able to enter in under the leadership of Joshua, each tribe was given an inheritance and a portion of that land, that space, that was theirs, that God had given them. In the new covenant that Christ has created in and through himself, we too have gained an inheritance again remember he chose us to be sons and daughters and so at christ's death we were able to inherit all that he had for us the blessings that he had for us and allow it to them to be applied to our life the first portion of our inheritance was that citizenship in the kingdom of god to allow us to be under the reign of christ to allow a new life to be given to us, being born again, allowing ourselves to live not as we once have, but as we should and as, and as God has prescribed. But not only that, we've inherited the Spirit of God that equips and moves and empowers us to live as God has asked us to live. But ultimately, our inheritance is an eternity with God. God. And that eternity will be spent in the new heavens and the new earth of Revelation 21 and 22. That this life now that we live, this land in which we occupy, we are simply passing through pilgrims on a journey to a greater end. All of this is possible because of what Christ has done for us and the fact that we are in Him. In Him we have an inheritance that we could not provide for ourselves colossians therefore tells us and instructs us due to the fact and in the knowing of this inheritance paul writes to us and he says this because we are of the kingdom of god because we have been chosen because we have been redeemed he writes and says whatever you do do it heartily as to the lord and not unto men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. What a great hope that is to have, especially confronted with the deterioration of our world around us. And yet, as believers in Jesus Christ, we can continue to always look forward and keep moving forward because of that hope that that generates within us and lastly in verses 13 and 14 we have been sealed with the spirit the great divider amongst that separates christianity from every other uh, apparent religion of the world is the giving and the promise of the holy spirit notice what paul writes here in verse 13 in him you also trusted ever after hearing or heard the word of truth, the gospel for, for, of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. God gave us a helper. One that initially came alongside of us, drawing us to Jesus. When we became a Christian, the Spirit then resided within us, giving us the power to live as a Christian, allowing us to bear fruit that is evidence of our Christian faith. The Bible also tells us that in God's time, we can be filled with the Spirit. For the, for the purpose of ministry, serving Him and glorifying Him. And that filling can happen over and over and over again. That we may again glorify God in the service that we render to Him. But notice that he calls it a seal. The seal in the culture of the Roman Empire was a, a depiction of authority. It meant ownership. It meant that you, uh, that whatever was sealed with that seal is uh, possessed, possessed, possessed. I got that word stuck in me. A possession of God. I'm glad I don't speak for a living. Uh, And as a result, God gave us the spirit that we may have a guarantee, knowing that when he returns, he has sealed us with this spirit for the purpose of identifying us and to carry us through the time in which we live here on this earth. But there's another meaning to this Greek word that often isn't discussed that I think is also incredibly important. The word seal, the word guarantee, is still used in the Greek society today For that of an engagement ring. That sealing us in the Holy Spirit was like God placing an engagement ring on us, stating that we were His, that He is our groom, we are His bride, the church is the bride of Christ, and that one day He is going to return for us, we will be with Him, and during the last days that the world will experience before the physical return of Christ on this earth... We will be enjoying the marriage supper of the Lamb while the world is under the weight and the wrath of God and the judgment of God for their um, decision not to follow Jesus Christ. This is what God meant by when He gave you the Spirit of God. It's a guarantee. It's a seal. You're under His authority. Nothing can happen to you now unless God okays it. It's a seal of promise that he's going to one day return for you, and it's also an engagement ring because it's not that he just simply subjected you to the kingdom of God. He, he uh, betrothed you and des- loves you and desires that intimate relationship with you. When Jesus talked about the coming of the Holy Spirit in John 14 16 through 17, he said this to his disciples. He says, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. He later then went on to further clarify his teaching on the Spirit in John sixteen five through 7 As Jesus told his disciples, but now I go away to him who sent me. And none of you asks, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And lastly, right before His ascension into heaven in Acts 1.8, the promise of this filling. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in, uh, for me to in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is what separates Christianity. It's not only that God has asked us, to fulfill the purposes and plans that He has for us and to live according to His prescribed manner within His Word, He has given you the power to do so. He's given you the ability through the Spirit to do so. And it's an incredible promise. And as we've worked through these verses, do you realize how blessed you actually are? Do you realize that? That you have been blessed with every Spiritual blessing that is in heavenly places. That you have been chosen. That you have been redeemed. That you have an inheritance waiting for you. And that you have been sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. All three heads of the Trinity working in concert, one with another in your salvation, bringing you back to the restored position and condition. That God always intended you to enjoy. We have to for- forget those things that we don't have, that are bringing us down and discouraging us, and embittering us and frustrating us. And we have to once again embrace the blessings of what we have in Christ Jesus. I guarantee you, it will transform your outlook on the whole entire world. On Friday night at youth group, I had a message planned, but then we got into a discussion and went completely in a different direction. But I had a jug of water up here. Now, I usually bring water up here, but I had a jug of water. And everybody's like, man, that guy must be really thirsty, you know. But it was a gallon jug and it was half full of water, and I wanted to hold it up and to show everyone who was there and ask them, how do you view this jug? And based upon their response, if they were to say it's half full, you would see that they have a more optimistic and understanding of the blessings that they truly have. If they say it's half empty, then you understand that they are focusing on what they don't have rather than on what they do have. It's a simple little exercise. In fact, I should have done it this morning, but verbally I think you get the point. We need to remember that as Christians we are the most blessed people on the earth. And of course, that is not consolidated to material blessings. God doesn't promise that we'll always be healthy, that we will always be wealthy. But what God does promise us is that He has chosen us, that He has redeemed us, that we have an inheritance waiting for us, and He has sealed us with the promise of the Holy Spirit, knowing that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing that is in heavenly places.